Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. In this episode of Fidelity Connects, we're joined by Fidelity Director of Quantitative Market Strategy, Denise Chisholm. She tells us what sectors and market factors she's keeping an eye on. Denise takes us through the indicators investors should be paying attention to. She highlights the importance of sentiment indicators, such as those provided by the NFIB, or the National Federation of Independent Business. She notes sentiment indicators can be essential tools for understanding the state of small businesses, and by extension, the broader economy. And what sets sentiment indicators apart is their ability to offer real-time insights, unlike government data, which typically lags. Denise also discusses the consideration between a value trade and value investing. She says where it becomes particularly relevant is in sectors like consumer staples. She says to be aware that valuation hasn't consistently delivered safety or prevented losses over time. So relying solely on valuation may not be a reliable strategy. In terms of offensive sectors or defensive play, Denise suggests sectors like discretionary, technology, and industrials. This podcast was recorded on September 28, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Hi, Denise. How are you? Hi, Pamela. I'm well. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. It's just still gorgeous fall weather and we're just soaking it in. So everyone's uh, sort of happy on that front. Let's begin to dig into this survey and, and ultimately to kind of have you take us how you work out from it. Okay. So small business indicators look like sentiment has fallen. This is new though. It is. So it has certainly been, it's been negative in in terms of most sentiment indicators that I look at. And the reason why I like to look at survey indicators is because you can think of them as a way to like crowdsource what's actually happening real time. And real time indicators are usually a projection in terms of forward momentum, as opposed to like the government data that comes in, tell us what's already happened, right? It's a bit of a rear view mirror look. So sentiment indicators and survey indicators can really tell you what might happen in the future. And different indicators like the Federal Reserve surveys or the NFIB survey can sometimes be pretty decent contrarian indicators, meaning what you are saying, the worse sentiment sometimes is, the better stock market returns are on a go-forward basis, right? Because you've already either grown into that from a valuation perspective or you already discounted that bad news in advance. And we can talk about that because that is some of what I'm seeing. But within that very, very broad brush survey, there are, I think, maybe 25 different subgroups. And we've talked about a couple of them in terms of intentions of intending to raise wages versus intending to raise prices for real wage growth proxy. And that's a really strong one to look at. But there's another really important one to look at when it's very movable. And that is the NFIB 
is credit hard to get portion of the survey. And that, no real surprise, when SVB went under in March, what we saw is a real spike in that saying credit is much harder to get for small businesses. And ironically, that's not always correlated with bad future stock market returns because it's in the top quartile of all historic levels. Um, And that's usually another way to think. And that's really what we've seen since March, that it could be a buying opportunity for the market. What's been really interesting is despite sort of the rally and you know the, the bad news that we've seen, and I think there's a lot of concern that the market is too far too fast, we've seen a dramatic improvement in this indicator, meaning that on the survey basis, and look, they're volatile, on a survey basis, we've seen a decline in terms of credit being hard to get over the last six months in such a dramatic fashion that it only happens about 5% of the time. Now, this to me is one of the big problems with this cycle is that we've been off cycle this cycle, right? We just had the GDP revision and we've seen that two quarters ago, we had pretty poor growth, right? GDI did contract, GDP almost contracted, earnings growth has contracted, right? So you can sort of look at this off cycle cycle and say, well, are you sure that we haven't seen whatever it is that we're going to see? Now, the big problem with that analysis is, will something come in to take us, tip us off that cliff? And mostly people point to a credit event because we have a banking issue. The yield curve is inverted. And many people point to that senior loan officer survey or the sluice survey that's quarterly data saying banks are tight in terms of lending standards at very restrictive levels. But when you look at this from a silver lining perspective, the NFIB often translates into that sluice survey, the sluice survey being quarterly, the NFIB survey being monthly. And this improvement of trend could be the beginning stages of improvement in the credit environment, which would be, I think, a very differentiated case than many investors expect. So that's so interesting. So if you look at the SLU's data, the senior officer loan, I don't know how it all says, and and this uh, the NFIB, you're saying that sometimes they can be contrarian, ultimately. Well, at least the NFIB one can. And then sort of the government data can be backward looking. So you've sort yes. of got backward looking and then contrarian. Just just kind of loop together for us how you use both. Yes, it's difficult. So the SLU survey or a senior loan officer, I think it's opinion survey that stands for SLUs. So that is in some ways very backward looking because when I look at it quantitatively, it's a coincident indicator. It tells you what has happened, not what is going to happen. So as much as we really want to make this indicator, hey, banks are not lending, therefore, then it's going to get worse in the future. Look, I'm not saying that will never happen, but if you're only relying on historical data, that is typically not the case. It tells you that consumption has slowed, the growth has slowed, and oftentimes it predicts that second derivative or the inflection of growth actually being better. So the issue that is that NFIB is monthly, the SLU survey is quarterly. Right now, all we have is two conflicting data points. We have a quarterly data point that's a little bit rear view looking saying, hey, lending is tight. And then we have a monthly input saying, I think it's getting better. So the question is, okay, we don't really know if this is the start of a new trend with this NFIB survey. Um, So we can say all we have right now is two very different indicators that are going in opposite directions. So for me, as a quant, I say, well, which one has the market valued more? So if we look at all the instances historically where NFIB has improved in terms of the credit market getting better, but Sluice is still signaling that it's quite tight, we'll see that the market has usually gone up and above average returns versus the opposite situation where NFIB is going down and the sluice is saying there's really no problem. 
So to me, and it's back to that, why do you watch surveys? Because they're usually more predictive than the back of looking economic data. So if they're predictive and if it's pointing to perhaps things on the credit side getting actually better, um, would this ultimately make the case for energy, for oil prices, which are going up, sort of fitting with an overall better economic situation? Yes, energy is in some ways the the pain trade in the market right now in the sense that that's been the clear outperforming group. And when you look at crude oil, uh, or I should say uh, Brent crude in euros, we've seen a significant breakout. So, I mean, I think that it's very different for ex-U.S. than it is U.S., but it, I, I've heard the argument, and it's been fairly consistent since I've been working at Fidelity since 1999, that energy is really offense. Because if you are betting on a global growth recovery, then energy demand is going to increase. So it's a beta plus play. And if, Denise, you're saying that the credit market in, improves and that recovery that we've seen the nascent start of continue, as LDI suggested it would, wouldn't I want to own energy stocks as that offensive play on the second? derivative impact of global growth? And the answer is going to say no. (laughs) (laughs) You know it. I am. I am going to say no, because I think that the way that translates to math, and look, maybe I'm wrong, but the way that translates to math is if it was a derivative on global growth, then if earnings rebound, I should see stronger relative earnings, meaning that relative earnings will improve more for the energy sector than it does for the broader based market. And I'm not seeing that, A, right now, and I don't think that we're going to see it. And it's in part because energy earnings have been so strong, right? It's back to the, they're the ones that got us into this mess, into 2022, when crude oil was so high and ROEs were at peak. And now we have seen a second derivative turn, albeit from very, very strong fundamental levels. But all of a sudden, you're seeing free cash flow be down, CapEx as a percentage of sales be up, and earnings be lower. I mean, that's actually what's dragging down the S&P 500 earnings. In that situation, I have a hard time calling that offense. It's hard for me to get around the aspect of energy being an offensive play if earnings are actually going to lag the next leg up in the market. So to me, energy still screens like defense. And that's why, despite the fact that I do think that there's going to be a recovery, it still sits in that negative risk reward bucket for me. And so what sits in the offense is what we typically think of when consumer sentiment is higher, the discretionary pulls ahead. And what else? Discretionary technology and industrials are the three that I think have the best representative characteristics of historical cyclicality and the best risk rewards right now. So if we think of this as a cyclical, non-cyclical, do we so do we sort of do we trust the offense sectors? In the sense that, you know, I mean, we've seen what we've seen. And interestingly, I think peak to drop and I just looked yesterday. We've seen a correction in the S&P of almost 8%. I mean, it depends on if you look at that intraday low. So almost 8%. And during that sell-off in the market, what we have seen is not really a rotation towards defense and not really a move in the credit market. So when you think about trusting offense versus defense and you say, okay, how's offense doing in this sell-off, in this new turn about you know, maybe a more hawkish Fed or insert whatever concern you want to have, so far, we don't have any negative confirmation signals out of that. I mean, maybe you could point to equal weighted discretionary, giving back some of its gains. But again, it's been sort of in this stair-step fashion where I think that there's still opportunity and there's no sort of 
um, problem area that you can point to in this cyclical rotation. Uh, so I think that, you know, if, if you think about offense telling you what the state of the market is and what the state of the market may be, so far it's been in a confirming trend. Okay, fascinating. So what then takes you to, um, on the other side, the the value trade, for instance, or, you know, often discussed as sort of value investing. Um, we spoke with Ramona Prasad yesterday. She was taking us through some of the, the ways that she looks at the market. I mean, she has a different way of looking at things. It's not just straight value, obviously. But what becomes sort of a value trap if, again, what you're looking at right now seems to point to, you know, maybe a rise, the cyclical trade? Yeah, no, Ramona was actually just in the meeting where I was going to discuss all this, as was our consumer staples analyst. And I think I'm going to pick on consumer staples being that potential value trap. Though there's certainly a story around the fact that, look, the market's up a lot. We have a lot of things that could still go wrong. And now when you look at valuation of some defensive sectors, not all defensive sectors, but some, they're cheap. So that seems to say that the margin of safety in those cheap defensive sectors with all of this potential you know, rally that we've seen has shifted to a positive risk reward. I don't see it because valuation has not been predictive historically. So consumer staples is now in the bottom quartile of its relative forward P.E. range going back to 1977. That's when we start with forward earnings. And you could squint and say it's got 62 percent odds of outperformance from that quartile. And that's better than when it's expensive at like 52 percent odds. But what you'll see is if you just look over the last 20 years, it's actually 45 percent odds. And really, it's it's like perfectly linear in the sense that valuation doesn't really help you. The reason why valuation has not helped you over the last 20 years is because history won't help you because we've seen such a trend change in terms of the margins. Consumer staple stocks were secularly higher cycle to cycle in the, you know, call it 70s, 80s and into the 90s and have since suffered an egregious round of margin compression. Now, you may be able to make the argument that it's been so bad that there's nowhere to go but up. I'm not going to be the one to make that argument. But what you can see very clearly is that valuation in and of itself has not helped you. And in fact, it has not saved you at all if you think that earnings are going to recover. You only have 20 percent odds. All right. 20 percent is not not saved you at all, but it's only saved you 20 percent of the time if earnings recover. So to me, that doesn't help your margin of safety because it hasn't been consistent in the past. And you should know that if you are betting on consumer staples, it's still a macro bet. And that to me seems risky with a lot of those silver lining indicators that I look at from a quantitative perspective that still say, I think that there's better than 50-50 chance that we do in fact see an accelerated recovery over the course of the next year, which makes that you know lower than 20% odds the consumer staples can actually stand up in that environment. Valuation is regardless. So to me, that screen's like a quant value trap. Okay, amazing. Okay, so then we go to a more bearish view of the world into the macro story, rising interest rates. What does it do ultimately? You know, what kind of pressure is that going to put on the economy, on the consumer? This this whole story. Um, when you stick to the consumer discretionary sector for a little bit, I mean. We talked a bit about real estate a while ago, so commercial real estate, no one really knows if that's going to be sort of the catalyst to have all things uh, fall apart. The bears will argue that's it. I, it makes me think of the world, particularly the United States, being over mauled <laughs> sort of 10, 15 years ago. It was like, oh, my goodness, it's a crisis. 
We have far too many malls. But over time, that's sort of regulated itself. And, it, and in fact, it's not over mauled at this point. It, it's adjusted. It's adapted. Do some of these crises just sort of happen in the background while the rest of the market goes higher? Is that, is that sort of how you see it? Because it does seem like there are all these macro problems waiting in the sidelines. Yes, that is a superb analogy. I mean, that's really the exact way to think of it. I think that we are really having knee-jerk reaction after COVID and the financial crisis that every single event is a sudden stop, right? If there is a problem, that problem will be systemic and it will create a sudden stop in the economy. And I can't tell you that that will never happen because, of course, it has happened. What I can tell you is looking through history is, that shouldn't be your base case that it happens. And you really hit the nail on the head in terms of saying, hey, look, we were overstored and we did have all these mall problems and it was a problem for these retailers. But the fact that, that we had time on our side versus some you know, very problematic event, that could be sort of grown into. There were other tailwinds that were happening at the same time as that headwind that you see on an oncoming basis. So I do think, I mean, time is usually on your side. Again, the financial crisis and in some ways COVID being the exceptions rather than the rules. So what is going on in commercial real estate might be resolved over the course of the next decade and might be very problematic for whoever those investors are. But those investors might also have other tailwinds that make those that very visible headwind not quite as bad as you might think. And not systemic, potentially. Right. Right. Okay, fascinating. When you take us into sort of the discussion of utilities, we've there are lots of questions that come in to talk about. These are, these are obviously interest rate sensitive parts of the economy, but they also seem to be part of the energy story, part of the overall transition story. Where do they sit when you look at them, relative and otherwise? Yeah, when I look at them on a sector aggregate basis, I'm not going to say that no individual stock within utilities can proxy an energy stock or a sort of green energy stock. But when you look at it on a market cap weighted basis, these things don't look at all like energy to me. And in fact, they look to me in terms of defensive characteristics, they're the most expensive defense that I see in the market. And I say that based on the data that is relative trailing PE and relative forward PE going back to 1962, they are both still in the top quartile of those ranges. So while a lot of defense has gotten cheap, like healthcare and consumer staples, utilities still screen expensive to me with the risk reward being negative. And in some ways, a lot of now we can argue whether the historical data is helpful for utilities because, you know, they are, they went from regulated to unregulated. Uh, but what you see over time is the same thing in terms of consumer staples, lower ROE cycle to cycle over the last 20 years. So you've got this situation where they don't even have valuation support in the sense that they're not cheap and you have worse fundamentals. So the risk reward still in, in that area looks the worst to me. And that's why I think that Regardless of what we think about the market and all the bad news that might happen, most of the indicators that I look at still point to the fact that the margin of safety is likely higher in those economically sensitive sectors. And maybe it's just around the fact that utilities and consumer staples and maybe even healthcare are just not nearly as good from a fundamental perspective as they were pre-1990. 
I, I was just going to say, gathering up some of the things you were just saying, they, they point to unregulated, regulated, and some of the, the government stories behind, for instance, the healthcare sector, there's always stories there. Could you comment on, I guess, the impact of the government shutdown, the potential shutdowns, and, and also wrap in the labor discussions? I mean, this is what is absolutely dominating headlines right now. To what extent investors need to be involved with worrying about that, I don't know. But can you fold that into your analysis for us? Yeah, I'll talk about that first. And then let's definitely get to the government shutdown, because that's going to be my note this week. But in terms of the um, uh, UAW strike specifically, I mean, we could talk about that in terms of a potential stoppage to GDP. Usually the market looks through anything that's potentially temporary. At some point, the two sides will come together and compromise. It's probably not going to be ad infinitum. So those things don't really have meaningful impact on long-term cash flows. Hence, the market usually looks through stuff like that. However, I think that the biggest question I've gotten about stuff like that is a potential for a wage price spiral that we saw in the 1970s. And I think what's most interesting about this inflationary push that we've seen post-COVID is that there has been none of that, right? This was the only situation since 1960, and I just say 1960, have the data further back, where we actually saw real wages contract despite the fact that nobody lost their job. Most of the time in, in the 70s and 80s, you had positive real wage growth. That was the ability to create the, the wage price spiral. Now, it's true. Now that inflation has decelerated, we have positive real wage growth again. So that maybe there's a concern that the wage price spiral will take off. But what I see is two years of some of the worst real wage growth that we've ever seen having a potential hangover and a disinflation impact, regardless of the fact that labor is maybe coming for its share. So I'm not, I'm pretty skeptical on this creating another sort of, um, you know, setup for a higher inflationary impulse. Uh, just from a strike perspective or from a labor perspective. But in terms of the government shutdown, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I guess it's the, it's, it's this, but it's sort of that ripple discussion. But I guess maybe the same thing applies that, that because there wasn't real increases in, in wage growth for a period of time that this is the hangover and it'll all even out in the end. Is that? Yes. And I think in some ways, like, can you be surprised after what right. we've seen in terms of real wage growth, that there would be labor coming for the share. Um, I, I think that it's in some ways a reaction to the horrific real wage growth that we've seen um, this cycle, the defining portion of this cycle. So in that sense, I mean, it's more of a stair-step pattern than anything we saw in the 70s and 80s, where, like I said, unless people were losing their job, real wage growth was always positive. So you were able to really generate that strong cycle for inflation. I think one of the things that I always disagree with just from a practitioner's perspective is that there is is this narrative that any additional growth will come with it inflation. And look, I think that we've, we've just talked about how imperfect the measures of the government are on growth or GDP and how imperfect price baskets can be on inflation. But when you look at those imperfect measures, when we go through time, we don't really have a lot of correlation to each other. So, you know, when you look at the percent of time when GDP actually, you know, reaccelerates, what is it matched with with an acceleration of inflation? It's less than 50-50. So that's why I, I get I get the theory and I get why, oh, stronger growth would, you know, it's higher demand for goods. And therefore, it just tells you that, A, they're imperfect measures, B, other pieces are moving, and C, they're not really the measures of supply and demand, right? A second derivative impact. 
narrative thrusting. I love it. Okay. A little bit, yeah. And that's around the shutdown. We do have like a lot of, you know, bad news around it. And we've had, I think it's going to be my note this week, but we basically have 20 instances since I think the mid seventies, a bunch of them were only hours. Some of them were serial. And if you add those serial ones together, you basically have five shutdowns that were longer than 15 days. So we can analyze that and you're going to see it in my note. And if you chart out like the average S&P returns from the shutdown, you really see no change in trend. And the reason why you see no change in trend, and again, these are, you know, 15 to 38 days, I think, or 34 days with the one in 2018 we had, you don't see any change in industrial production. You see very little change in earnings. It might have a temporary impact on multiples where you see multiples in that very buy the rumor, sell the news kind of way that the market does. You see multiples contract into the shutdown and then expand out of the shutdown to sort of give you those above average returns um, the year following the shutdown. It is sort of in an odd twist of fate. If you look at those five occurrences and you say, okay, if I knew that the government was going to shut down for more than 15 days that year, if I bought it on the shutdown, what were my returns looking like one year later? They're actually above average, meaning that if you just sort of dropped an alien into QRI and said, give me an alpha signal, he'd be like, government shutdowns are a pretty good one. <laughs> So it's sort of funny. So just be careful and, you know, always know that just don't assume that you know what the market's going to do. Okay. That's, that's completely fascinating. Just to sort of pull in what, what you hear, you'll hear on the political side of things that there isn't a lot of will on, on either side to sort of get this solved, sort of because it doesn't add to either of their numbers. That seems to be the argument. And therefore it could go longer. Um, does a longer one create further problems? It doesn't seem, again, in the data, I mean, unless you want to bust the analog and say it's not going to be 30 days, it's going to be 100 days. But again, back to those, we could look at other patterns in history and look at strikes and look at temporary shutdowns, unless you think it's, again, like a half a year or a year and the two sides never resolve. The market just has this really tricky track record of saying, well, it's temporary, it's not going to affect long-term free cash flows, so I'm not really going to pay attention to it. So it's hard to say, and especially after a peak to trough contraction of 8% in the S&P, you start to come up with the, well, what is discounted already? Maybe people are already thinking that it's going to be 100 days and maybe it's going to be, you know, 45. So, so ba- thank you for that. So based on the consumer itself, um, tell us about top three sectors, bottom three sectors, and sort of, because there's still concern around the consumer. And I think this seems to be the question mark for everyone marching forward with one sector or another, trying to read where the consumer goes. Yes. So I think that the consumer is a big group, right? And I I will say that you have seen a shift in terms of post-pandemic. During the pandemic, what we saw is a shift from income or relative income growth from the top quartile income earners to the bottom quartile income earners. And now that has flipped. So you are seeing stress in that bottom quartile. The interesting part about that when it comes to investing is, though I do think you have to struggle with it as an investor saying, well, that is where the news is the worst, but that is also where the stocks are cheapest and historically have valuation support. Now, as the way that translates to the broader economy, so you can either make the argument that this is going to be sort of a trickle up situation and that that low end consumer now is getting worse and that that worsening will eventually be seen on the rest of the economy. Or you can say that there are a systemic impact to the rest of the consumer and going to cause a, a, a decline in consumption. I don't see either of those being the case. 
Specifically, I mean, we just saw in jobless claims this morning that the job growth is still strong. It's hard to get any kind of trickling effect when there's not massive job loss. And when you look at that struggling of that lower income consumer, it's a very small portion of the debt market and it's a very small portion of what banks own in terms of debt. So broadly, you still look at banks that have lent to good, pretty, pretty good credit scores. And when you look broadly at the overall U.S. consumer, albeit driven by the top income earners, what you find is a pretty good uh, situation where net worth is a percentage of GDP, um, disposable income is at all time highs. And you see that the savings rate is still fine, especially after the revisions that we've seen income and the job market is fine. And oh, by the way, incomes are growing on an annual basis, 5%. So, you know, and we don't have a debt service problem or a debt problem. So always remember that I think it's tricky to think that the U.S. consumer is going to collapse on itself. So you can stick with consumer discretionary. Sorry, just yes. jump in. I want to make sure I get that. With consumer discretionary tech. Technology and, and industrials. Okay. And bottom? Bottom three, real estate. I would take uh, utilities and consumer staples. And consumer staples. Amazing. I wish we had time for more. Thank you very much. Thanks, Pamela. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.